Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, I'll be honest, I've got, not got a lot to say this week. <laughs> now, there'll be people out there saying, well, so what's new? But uh, it's relatively quiet time. We've not had many emails. Um, Championship League continues. It's the last week coming up. The champion will be crowned on Friday. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see whether it's someone who's won titles before or whether it is a new winner. Of course, last year it was Dave Gilbert. Uh, I have a slight feeling Shao uh, Sing Tong might win it, but uh, I don't, uh, that's just based on... I don't know. <laughs> Just a slight feeling, really. Nothing more than that. He's one of 32 left. So that can, continues this week. Um, there's, of course, qualifying has been on for the uh, the European Masters. Great win for Jimmy White over Andrew Padgett. Really terrific break of 133. He didn't make a century on tour all last season. He's already made one in his first match this season. So that's encouraging. Because he turned 60 earlier this year. I have great admiration for Jimmy for, for keeping his passion for snooker. Because he really does love it. Um, still, and he played well. He made a nice little clearance uh, to win the decider as well. So he's going to uh, Furt in Germany in August. G- uh, Stephen Hendry is not. He got beat 5 0 by Mark Joyce, the exact opposite, really. Um, so, yeah, the comeback sort of stalling there. But anyway, um, now, snooker player bingo was a sensation last week. Uh, I'm thinking of taking it to Channel 5. They, they need something now, they lost neighbours. Um, so thank you for the uh, the feedback on it, and we've had some suggestions for uh, players that we can do in the future. So we will. I'll, I'll give a list. Uh, John Dew has written. Uh, thank you for bringing Snooker Scene podcast back in extra length form. Mostly, <laughs> we t- we t- yeah, wait to hear th- hear this episode. Well, we two episodes per week of your passion and commitment to providing a first class, entertaining, and informative listen. Thank you, John. Genuinely appreciated the hard work and time you give to the show for promoting this wonderful sport in such a compelling fashion. Having just listened to the latest Snooker Play Bingo edition, may I say how great it is to hear yourself and Phil Yates together. You genuinely, gen- you genuinely bounce off each other so well, audio-wise, a joy to listen to, as well as having a combined depth of knowledge that is the envy of most fans and listeners. I'm now, having entered my 40s, sadly or fortunately, able to remember every one of the inductees of the latest Snooker Player Bingo Hall of Fame. Doug Mountjoy being one of my very first snooker idols. John Pullman being ITV's lead commentator and often underrated when compared to Ted Lowe and Jack Carnham. And Jim Meadowcroft, one of the best ever summarisers of all time, with again a wonderful voice. Anyway, so John, you've sent these names. I'm not going to reveal them because I will be using some of them um, in the next edition, which may, who knows, it may be this week. Uh, And Chris Boggan. Dear Dave and Phil, I just arrived home from a night out, and let's just say I'm completely John Pullman. <laughs> what a delight to hear your musings on John and Steve James on my walk home. I may have to leave the rest to the morning. 
A message then, mainly of appreciation. Snooker bingo, if you build it, they will come. Now, John sent this... Uh, Sorry, Chris, rather, sent this at two in the morning, basically. So he had been out for the night. Not heard back from him since. So I don't know uh, if he's listened to the rest of it. Uh, hopefully uh, the head is all right. Uh, so do keep the suggestions coming in. We have had uh, some of our dear friends on Twitter as well have sent them in. And um, we will do another edition shortly. Um, I had a question about... Um, someone asked me... Uh, on Twitter about the commentary uh, of the Championship League and the fact there's none at the European Masters and why not because he pointed out that the commentators obviously are there for the Championship League and obviously all the equipment is set up well the, the, it, it's essentially this okay Matchroom run the Championship League and they have commentary will Snooker Tour run the qualifiers and they don't that's a choice that they've made however uh, nothing's forever is it so uh, Put it this way, it may change, it, uh, it may not, but it may change. I know it's going to be discussed, so hopefully uh, hopefully things will change there. Um, now, uh, what have we got here? Uh, Ross Williams. Uh, I said, I discovered your podcast during lockdown and now never miss an episode. I love the content and I'm looking forward to the new season. Your comments on the recent disciplinary matters involving Matt Selt, Robert Milkins and Liang Wenbo got me thinking about the Stephen Lee case. We're about two years away from the expiration of Stephen's 12-year ban, which seemed like a lifetime away at the time, and I originally thought it was career over. Do you think there is perhaps a way back into the professional game for him or the now ever-expanding senior circuit? I'm not condoning his actions at the time, but he was undoubtedly an incredible cueist and would certainly create some interest. Well, he was certainly a great player. Um, here's the thing. OK, so he was banned, as you say, in 2012 for 12 years, so 2024, that ban is up. However... He still owes, as far as I'm aware, a lot of money in terms of uh, the fines and the legal costs that I believe he didn't pay at the time. And until he does pay them, he won't be allowed back on. So that's the only that's the only route back on is to pay all that off. And obviously, that's a lot of money that I'm sure he, you know, he doesn't want to pay. So um, that's it, really. He can't play again until that all that is is paid back. Um, so I suspect he won't come back. Um, if he did, he could probably actually still, uh, you know, still actually do well. Uh, that's the tragedy, really, of what happened because, you know, all the playing opportunities that, that came along in in the time he was off the tour, I'm sure he would have done really well from. But, um, you know, he, he shouldn't have done what he did. Uh, now then, on the Championship League, Mark Baisley, just a thought while watching the recent Championship League matches: Is there any reason these events are still held behind closed doors? I understand why it started out like that when it was held at Crondon Park for several years, but now it's being played at arenas and it's become a ranking event as well. Would it not make sense to open it up to spectators too? Having said that, I'm sure there's probably a very good reason it's still like this. Well, Mark, uh, yeah, it's, as you say, it's never had crowds. I mean, you couldn't have had them at Crondon Park, there wasn't room. And also, the original event was set up essentially to be purely streamed online to betting markets, essentially. So... You, you couldn't have people at, at the event um, ahead of the stream, I guess. That was the, the idea. I think the, the feeling now is that it, it's just, it creates a lot more hassle and a lot more work for people if it's suddenly open to fans. Actually, where the, where the tables are in the Morningside Arena, there's no seating round, round there anyway. Um, but I think it's always, it's always been behind closed doors. It's always been for sort of broadcast viewing. And it's just felt that that's how it should stay. Um... So yeah, that, that's that's basically the answer. Um, if it sort of expanded further, then maybe that that might change. But at the moment, it just seems to work, basically as it is. 
Now, Tony Finnegan writes, For one minute, let's just imagine we are living in a utopian world, although for what I'm about to say should be reality, in my opinion. For reaching the milestone of 200 podcasts and your continued excellent service to snooker broadcasting, will Snooker Tour have a two-week window in their schedule and decide to introduce a new tournament for the 2022-23 season? It will be called, wait for it, the Dave Hendon Classic. It is in your honour, and you and you alone have total say into the design and structure of the tournament. So after hearing the news about returning or missing tournaments from the snooker calendar for the coming season, I would like your views on the ideal tournament taking following factors into consideration. Number one, the venue. Could be past or completely new venue in any country. Number two, would it be ranking or invitational? How many players would be involved? Three, the dress code. Four, the length of matches, particularly in the latter stages in the final. Plus any other details you would like to add that you feel would improve the overall tournament experience. Remember, you're the boss. Whatever you say goes. My only contribution to proceedings would be that the Dave Hendon Classic Trophy should be a large glass crystal piece of chalk presented to the eventual winner by none other than Fergal O'Brien. Anyway, I would like to hear your views on the Utopian Snooker Tournament. Well, <laughs> thank you, Tony, for the suggestion. Um, I think it would have to be a, a not a, an old tournament brought back, and it would have to be a, have a new format and be different to what is already available. Here's my thought. I did think about this. Um, I would like to see a, a proper... When we hear about, for example, the British Open draw that they did the other day, and we hear it's FA Cup style. Well, yes, it is. It's drawn out randomly. But the whole point about the FA Cup is it's the, the romance of having non-league teams involved early on and maybe they'll get through to play a big team in round three. It's about giant killing. Um, we don't really have that in snooker because we have a professional tour um, which is limited to, I think it's 131 players. And even if one professional beats another... They're still professionals. Now, we do have, of course, the amateur top-ups, but most of those people are not really amateurs. They're just ex-professionals. So if we were going to have a new tournament, I would like to see an attempt at some sort of FA Cup-style event where you have the tour players and then you invite a load of amateurs from around the world. You can have pre-qualifying events. I mean, it has to be a certain standard because, you know, if, if someone walked in off the street with a queue and played Ronnie O'Sullivan, they would just get battered obviously. Um, so there has to be a certain standard, so therefore maybe some qualifying. But invite as many amateurs from around the world and make it truly global and put them in a tournament with the tour. So you could have, you know, 256 players, you know, the pros and a load of amateurs. Uh, random draw, so amateurs could play each other, but they could play the top players. Um, and so then you have actually got you know, we talk about aspiration, but you've got a, an opportunity there for someone who can win maybe a, a club qualifier to play Neil Robertson on television. Now, obviously, you know, they're probably going to get beat, but it's still an opportunity that you dream about. Um, there's a question of whether it should be a handicap, um, and that's, you know, I'll uh, I'll speak to my staff about that <laughs> as it's my tournament. But that's what I'd like to see, a, a properly open event that's not just for the professionals, but actually has amateur players in it as well, um, FA Cup style, and potentially, I know you say it's a two-week tournament, but potentially you could play it, you know, or, or like the FA Cup at weekends. I know you need the time in the calendar, um, but you could play it at different venues. They don't all have to be at the same venue. So Ronnie O'Sullivan's playing someone in Glasgow and Judd Trump's playing someone in Southampton. So therefore you take, I know this is 
they're both British <laughs> towns and cities, but you could take matches around the country. Why not take them up to Europe, even China? Take it around the world. Play matches in all different parts of the world, maybe. Logistically a nightmare, I'm sure. And travel costs, all the rest of it. But you said utopian. So that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a tournament that's actually not played in one venue, that's full of pros and amateurs, and it's taken to all different parts of Britain, of Europe, Asia, wherever. The old Matchroom League, the Premier League, they used to go to different bits of the country and, you know, was successful in, in taking snooker to places that maybe wasn't very well served by a big tournament. I don't think it could, could be a ranking event because, obviously, with amateurs in it, that, that complicates things. The dress code, um, I think you have to be pretty casual. I, maybe not not necessarily waistcoats. I'm not, I, I've never been that bothered about the dress code. I think a final venue you need, so maybe to play... I mean, obviously, the FA Cup, they play the semis and the final at Wembley. So maybe um, find a venue that uh, is not already hosting a tournament, but is, you know, known to work for snooker. Maybe somewhere, if it's still still going, like uh, the Guild Hall in Preston. I'm never sure whether that's still open or not. The Hexagon in Reading, that was always a, a popular venue for the Grand Prix. Somewhere like that, that's got a bit of something about it. And the length of matches, I think... I'd like to see the length of matches increase round by round. So start off, by all means, with a, with a best of five, a best of seven, and then go up round by round. Then it's best of nine, then it's best of 11. So by the time you get to the final, why not have a best of 25 final? Let's, let's bring that back. Um, obviously, it'll have to be two days. And then you've got the choice. You could finish on the afternoon. So we're not up against the big Sunday night um, you know, TV attractions. We'd probably be up against football on a Sunday afternoon, but... Uh, but yeah, I, those old ITV finals, Saturday afternoon and evening and Sunday afternoon, they were always very popular. So that's essentially it for the Dave Endon Classic. It would be a big uh, pros and amateurs in together, 256 players, amateurs from all around the world, random draw, played in as many venues as possible, uh, with an increasing value in terms of frames, uh, and... Well, you say Fergal would present the trophy because he could win the tournament. Let's, let's not count that out. Um, but yeah, that's it, really. I think that would be something different. Uh, it'd be a chance for ordinary players to get a chance to play these guys. Maybe see some stars of the future. Certainly see some stars from around the world. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's loads of reasons why this could never happen. But you asked the question, Tony, and that's my answer. Now, on to other matters. Uh, we should welcome to the podcast world, of course, the snooker podcast world, uh, Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour. Uh, they have their 147 podcast in which they talk about snooker and other things as well. And uh, it's good to have a podcast with a player on it, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we, we, we have our sort of opinion episodes, we have uh, interview episodes with players, but to have a player on regularly uh, to give their side of what it's like to be on the snooker tour as a player. And, of course, no, no ordinary player. Sean is one of the great players, let's be clear, world champion, multi-tournament winner, and still very much a top player now. And also someone who uh, has taken an interest in the broadcasting side of snooker, so he's seen the game from that side as well. Uh, Phil, of course, uh, is a master of ceremonies. So uh, best of luck to them. Um, and uh, Sean, he did an interview with World Snooker this week uh, talking about... Uh, I thought he was right what he said. He was talking about the fact that players can actually... They don't have to rely on the media now. I'll read what he said, because I think it's quite interesting. He says, I think it's important for the players to realise they all have their own platforms now. 
In general, digital media is underused and as a sport, the players undersell themselves. There's a whole world out there where you can blow your own trumpet. You don't need a PR person these days. The media is there for yourself. When I turned professional, the only exposure you got was when a journalist wanted to speak to you. These days, players can be their own journalists and do their own copy. Uh, I think we're seeing an explosion of interest in this sort of content. Yeah, he's absolutely right. And um, of course, the problem is some players, particularly with social media, you know, they have embraced it, and then of course they get the nasty side of it, and suddenly it's not such, <laughs> it's not such um, uh, sort of uh, enjoyable thing to be part of. Um, but in terms of promoting yourself, um, I was amazed. Like, I mean, it's it sort of almost. It doesn't seem like it applies now, but go back sort of 15 years, how, many, how few players sort of bothered to get a website going, or bothered to sort of build themselves up in that way. And I know Stuart Bingham also does a podcast, um, and Sean does one, but I, I'm, as far as I'm aware, they're the only players who are doing it. And uh, I think what he says is true. You know, you have an opportunity to promote yourself. Um, and presumably, you know, if you've got sponsors and, and, and all the rest of it, that, that's something that's a benefit to them. But what what he's also doing is... You know, promoting the game. Um, so, I think Sean, you know, he kind of gets it. Um, whereas some players, they'll complain about lack of opportunities, but you know, you can make your own opportunities. Um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll complain, for example, that World Snooker only promotes certain players, and whether that's true or not, uh, and I don't think it is personally. I think they they actually promote a, a wide range of players. Um, you can you can do it yourself. Um, and anyway, Sean, I think uh, you know he's. Uh, He's a good sort of person to look at from that perspective, and certainly in the in the broadcasting side as well. He's uh, well, he's proved himself to be a natural at it. So, um, best of luck to Sean and Phil for that. Now, I thought I'd end this week or this first episode of the week um, <laughs> with uh, a pointless countdown. Um, men love lists, don't they? Let's be honest, particularly lists that count down to, to number one. So, and this may become a regular feature. Who knows? I thought I would rank. Ronnie O'Sullivan's seven world titles in terms of uh, importance, significance, uh, matches that he played along the way, and just general, my own prejudices. So, now they're all impressive. Obviously, to win the World Championship is impressive. So I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. I'm just saying, in my sort of view, uh, the importance, the significance of each one in turn. So we're going to start at number seven. So this is counting down from seven to one. Number seven, I've got 2020. Now, I think a lot of this is just that tournament was played in August, a uh, completely different time to normal. It was played almost entirely in an empty crucible. My memory of it was when the matches began, actually, you just focused on them. But it wasn't the same, um, clearly, as what we've always been used to in terms of crowds and atmosphere and just the, the time start in April. Um O'Sullivan did face a few challenges. He was uh, trading against Mark Williams in particular. Um, and obviously the Mark Selby semi-final was, was a classic. He had to come from behind. You could argue he should have lost that match, but he didn't. So, you know, there's, there's no point, you know, saying he should have done. He didn't. What impressed me actually most was the way he dug in at the end of the third session, where he could have been quite a long way behind, probably too far behind. Uh, but he dug in and uh, he won in a decider. And then in the final... Obviously, Karen Wilson had had that semi-final against Anthony McGill, um, which, in the old sort of cliche, was kind of his final. It must be said, he made a, a real match of it on day one, Karen. He was, uh, I think he was 8-2 down at one point, but he fought back and was only a f uh, two frames behind, 9-7. And then the last frame was a tight one, and he lost it. So it was 10-7 
just gave O'Sullivan a bit of breathing space. And then on the last day, all his experience, he just pulled away the canter. So it wasn't much of a spectacle. Um, so that was world title number six. Now, number six in my countdown is 2008. Uh, he made a maximum uh, in that tournament. Uh, of course, he'd already, this was his, uh, his ultimately his third uh, world title. Very few people got close to him. There wasn't huge drama. I mean, he played well, obviously, throughout the whole tournament. But there wasn't really huge kind of drama. And you get to the semis, and uh, he beats Hendry 17-6. Now, at that point, there was a sort of sense of inevitability that he would win the title because he's playing Ali Carter, who uh, is in his first world final. I mean, this was Ali's big breakthrough. Of course, he'd made a maximum the day after O'Sullivan as well. But there's a lot to be said for experience in a world final. And, yeah, he wasn't close. Uh, he it was 6-2, it was 11-5, and he just pulled away and won easily. So it's not the most memorable tournament. It's not his fault. He did his job. He won the event. Um, but, you know, the 2008 World Championship, actually the two maximums, <laughs> in some ways, were the most memorable things about them. Um, so it doesn't stand out, particularly for any other reason, I don't think. Number five in the countdown, I've got 2004. Uh, this was an interesting one because, um, of course, he teamed up with Ray Reardon, who, who definitely brought some steel into his game. But having won in 2001, uh, in between he was winning tournaments, yes, but he wasn't dominating the game at all. And this was the era of Higgins and Williams. I mean, Mark Williams was the best player in that little period, by far, actually. Um, of course, he was defending the, t the title in 2004. Uh O'Sullivan drew Steve Maguire in the first round. Now that's uh, you know it's a very difficult draw, but he won ten six. I remember the second round match very clearly. Uh, I remember the BBC even interviewed me at one point about it in the press room. He played Andy Hicks, who was sort of thought to be a little bit past his best then. Although of course <laughs> Andy's still on the tour now. But thirteen eleven, he was really pushed, and there was a lot of uh, angst between him and the press. Um, there were suggestions that he made a couple of gestures and so on, um, and they were reported, and he wasn't happy. Um, after he beat Hicks, he started to answer the first question, and he just walked out. He was upset with the way the media were portraying him, with some justification, although not, not entirely. You know, they were reporting things that happened, but there was some suggestion that a couple of journalists were kind of almost targeting him, and uh, I had some sympathy for him. But anyway, Ray Reardon did his job there because he basically got him in a good place mentally, um, toughened up his game, hardened up his game, showed O'Sullivan really a different way to play snooker. It's not all about just potting and, and break building. You can bring some steel into it, some nous, some match play, some tablecraft. All these things that he had that he started to employ. He thrashed Anthony Hamilton 13-3 uh, and then he beat Hendry 17-4 in the final. In, in, sorry, in the, in the semi-finals, which you know was just an absolutely extraordinary crushing, really. I mean, Hendry was still a good player then. Um, the final, he played Graham Dot. Again, he was in his first final. Uh, Dot led 5-0. People, <laughs> people maybe have forgotten this now, but he led 5-0. Um, but O'Sullivan won 18-8. So he came, came very, very strong at the end. Um, and yeah, it was... Uh, it was a great win, his second world title, so he became a multiple title, a multiple titleist. But Ray Reardon was uh, a big part of that, and uh, it definitely it was a, it was a, a very important influence at that time in O'Sullivan on O'Sullivan. Um, where are we now? So number four, I've gone for twenty twelve. Um, this was another meeting with Ali Carter in the final. His former 
tailed off quite badly, actually. Um, he'd been on the sort of treadmill for 20 years as a pro. Um, he went. To, he, he was struggling at that time a little bit, and he went to Germany. I remember he was 4-0 down to Andrew Higginson. Um, and, you know, he'd seen players like Selby and Robertson and Ding, and even by then Judd Trump, start to emerge as tournament winners. And the question was, how long could he keep going? Well, he answered that question pretty emphatically because he won that German tournament. He came back, won that match, won the tournament. I think that got him in a good place for the World Championship. Uh, big Neil Robertson in the quarters. That was a big win because, as I say, Robertson by then was sort of one of those players who was looking like he was going to start challenging. But Matthew Stevens in the final. And then Ali Carter, 18-11. Sorry, Matthew Stevens in the semi-finals. Ali Carter, 18-11 in the final. Uh, he had his son there. And... Uh, also, Dr. Steve Peters by then had gone to the firm, so no longer we were with Ray Reardon, but he'd learned a lot from Dr. Steve Peters, and that was definitely in in the sort of last ten years has been a very significant uh, sort of uh, part of his army, really, to be able to go to a, a psychiatrist and, and talk to him frankly about things that maybe he, he doesn't feel he can talk to other people about. We're doing the, the top the uh, seven world titles won by Ronnie O'Sullivan, ranked number three. I've got 2001, this was his first. Um, and, yeah, it was a big moment for him. It was a big moment for the sport. What's significant is he broke through first from that class of 92 with Higgins and Williams as a tournament winner. He won the UK Championship when he was 17 in 1993. He was winning quite a few other tournaments. He'd won the Masters, for example, and a lot of other ranking events. But, crucially, John and Mark, by 2001, have both been world champion. John in 1998, Mark Williams in the year 2000. So the pressure was on him to do it. And, I mean, I've told this story so many times, but he's told it, so it's worth repeating. Before the final session of his final with John Higgins, there was a parade of champions, former winners of the World Championship, at the Crucible. And at the end of it, Jimmy White was brought out as the people's champion. And I know that Ronnie looked at that and thought, I, didn't ne I never want to be in that position where I'm getting, essentially, a kind of sympathy vote. Um... I'd never want to be here and not be part of that, that parade of champions. Anyway, he beat Higgins 18-14, and that was a proper test. John had won it before, so he was the experienced man in the final. But O'Sullivan got in front early on and just about held Higgins off. Higgins sort of kept threatening to come back. The full-scale recovery never quite materialised, and Ronnie O'Sullivan was world champion. And at that point, he was 25, so it had taken him a little bit longer than people had expected, but I think a lot of people felt that he could go on winning it. And he has done that, just not... Not year after year, but maybe more impressively, he's done it across the decades. Number two then. So what is the number two world title for Ronnie O'Sullivan? I've gone for this year, 2022. The Magnificent Seven, the tears at the end, the whole drama of it. He was sharp from the very beginning. I know he was 3-0 down to Dave Gilbert, but in terms of his approach and his focus and his behaviour and the way that he just focused on the snooker, I thought he was exemplary, actually. Um, serene, almost but determined at the same time. He had that big test in the final when Trump turned it on on the last afternoon. And we came out for the evening and it just looked like a, the start of a new match. O'Sullivan, again, was focused hard, determined to get it won, and he did. We saw what it meant to him, regardless of anything that he may say about it in the future. He wanted to win that badly. He was very emotional, not just in the arena, he was emotional backstage afterwards. It meant a hell of a lot. We saw him the next day, he was still in Sheffield, 
clearly on a massive high, a massive buzz, because it's 17 days, but in some ways it's your whole life building up to these moments. Um, it was a, it was an extraordinary thing to happen and has only been beaten in my countdown by the number one, which is 2013. And that's because, of course, he had taken a whole year off, <laughs> apart from one PTC match, not played the whole season. So he was coming into the 2013 World Championship cold and still won it. And I think that says a lot about him as a character in terms of, frankly, his intimidation factor. He's the only player who could do that, I think. It's not just about not being sharp in terms of match play. It's about actually standing up to that pressure and, and running a Sullivan at any venue, but certainly at the Crucible. It all, almost feels to me now, he's so, such a big figure, he almost feels to me like he's already 3 or 4 nil up before we've actually started. Um, he, you know, It's a different atmosphere in Ronnie's matches to anyone else's. And that year, you know, he came along and we didn't know what to expect. I'm sure he didn't know what to expect. Um, he beat Marcus Campbell, he beat Ali Carter, Stuart Bingham, and then in the semis he beat Judd Trump, who of course you know had emerged as a great crowd favourite. And in the final against Barry Hawkins, Hawkins played superbly. Hawkins played about as well as anyone's played in a the final they haven't won at the Crucible. Pushed O'Sullivan, he made six centuries, um, and won eighteen twelve. But he had to play well, and he did. And it was uh, well, he defended the title, but it was the way he did it. You know, no one else has ever done that, taking a year out and coming back and winning. So, for me, and it's my personal opinion, of course, on my podcast, the greatest of them all was 2013. But uh, let me know, have I got the order right? Have I got the order wrong? I'll just remind you of it from 7 to 1. So, number 7, 2020, 6, 2008, 5, 2004, 4, 2012, 3, 2001, 2, 2022, and number 1. 2013. Worth saying again, though, <laughs> they're all impressive. You know, you can put them in any order, really, because winning the world title speaks for itself. But that's my personal sort of list if I was going to rank Ronnie O'Sullivan's uh, seven world titles. We may do that for, for Stephen Hendry in the future. Um, of course, they could have played each other in the European Masters, but Hendry got beat by Mark Joyce, and uh, Ronnie's got to play Sean O'Sullivan, but that, that could have happened. Uh, but if it had happened, obviously, <laughs> you know, Ronnie would have been a massive favourite because, as I say, even back in 2004, when Hendry was still a top player, you know, O'Sullivan beat him 17-4. This is why this, if it is still an argument about who's the greatest, I'm afraid, and I'm a massive uh, admirer of Stephen Hendry, I have massive respect for him and what he achieved in the game, but I, I, I don't see the argument for Hendry over O'Sullivan anymore, I'm afraid. Um, I think Ronnie has won that one, frankly. Um, anyway, that's it. Um, we'll be back hopefully on Thursday. Hopefully with more snooker player bingo as it seemed to go down well. Uh, and in the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social Network. Uh, check out their other podcasts. And you can email us or at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. I couldn't bring myself to say goodbye by last week. I was with Phil and it's a bit awkward because, of course, that was his... Uh, <laughs> it came from a little slip-up of his that we got that catchphrase. Um but he's not here now, so I'll say it. Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.